Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Before we begin this discussion on public charge, we must address what role COVID-19 plays in the determination process for this rule. USCIS announced after this recording that immigrants who undergo medical testing for COVID-19 or receive treatment for it will not be penalized when applying for green cards and visas under the newly enacted public charge rule. This piece of information is important to keep in mind throughout this episode. Treatment for COVID-19 will not negatively impact applicants. Joining today to discuss this final ruling and its impact is Erickson Immigration Group Attorneys Richard Christensen and Crystal Kearse. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. In terms of preparation, Richard, what are some of the things that comes to mind that you think will best prepare employers and employees? Um, so there's a myriad of things. The The biggest thing for employees, so these are the actual applicants, right? Um, this new final rule is implemented in the form I-944. That's the kind of new form that's going to be filed with all adjustment of status applications. The employees have to provide, as I think we've discussed previously on the podcast, you know, various financial information. Um, so the best way to prepare for that in the short term, obviously, when you know that you're coming up to your adjustment of status time frame is to gather that information. You can obviously reach out to us if there if are clients or out to your attorney if you have different a different attorney to get a list of those documentations that are that are gonna be required and then they can get to work on, on gathering those together because it can be kind of expansive. So on the employer side of things, it's mostly just providing support really um, for your employees. You know, there, it is kind of a, a more onerous process at this point um, on the document gathering side of things. So just understanding that your employees are going through this, um, you know, and making sure that you provide the support where you can. Yeah, I'd also like to add that I think it's also important that expectations are set up front as far as the time that it would take to complete these forms and gather all of these documents, because this is a brand new requirement that was never needed before. So if you are, you know, running up to some sort of tight deadline and you need to file your adjustment of status by a certain date, uh, just being mindful that there is this extra step that you have to take and there are a lot more uh, documents that you'll have to submit moving forward with your application. And so as Richard said, you know, starting to collect those documents earlier on in your green card stage will benefit you at this stage of the process. Right. And could you break down a little bit more what the I-944 is and what's required? Yeah, sure. So the I-944 is, it's titled a Declaration of Self-Sufficiency. So basically, but in the past, the USCIS public charge rule, which has always been around, it's not a, necessarily a new rule. It's kind of a redefinition of an old rule is what's actually happened. Um, and it used to be that it wasn't assumed that you were a public charge. Now the assumption, USCIS has kind of shifted gears and the assumption is that everybody's a public charge basically and you have to prove you're not. And so that's what the I-944 does. It's it's a doc, it's a form that requests financial documentation, health insurance, educational, uh, you know, past educational experience in order to prove to USCIS that you're not gonna become a public charge, which is basically somebody who relies on the government for their subsistence. Right. Oh yeah. So 
you know, to speak more specifically about the actual evidence, the form actually does walk you through all the different factors of being a public charge. So they're looking at things like your age, your health, your family uh, status and financial status, education and skills. So along with that, you have to show all of these different pieces of evidence. So it is interesting because one uh, one piece of evidence that you have to include is your credit report. Right. And so, you know, just because you're filing an adjustment of status application from within the United States does not mean that you've lived here long enough to build up credit. Mm. So, you know, I'm curious, Richard, to get your stance on what is that alternative evidence? If if you've just arrived in the United States and you're now qualified to file for an adjustment status, what do you submit? How do you meet that burden of proof so that your application is not rejected up front by USCIS? That's a great question. And, and it's something that we're actually kind of still feeling out to see exactly what USCIS says, right? So in the instructions to the I-944, they do say that if you don't have a credit report, um, because of you know not enough time in the U.S. Or, or what what have you, then you can submit proof that you don't have a credit report, which typically will just be you know requesting a credit report from one of the big three credit reporting agencies, them saying we don't have a credit report for you, um, and submitting that proof to USCIS. But then they also say, and you may submit proof that you've paid your bills on time or something kind mm. of <laughs> right. vague right. like that, right? right. Um, and so it's not extremely clear how they'll weigh that, um, and and what that'll that will. What that'll mean for the individual who doesn't have a credit report, but there is, you know, ways that we can that we can explain that to USCIS, and the hope, obviously, always is that they'll be understanding of that. But right, what it comes down to is the discretion of the officer, right, of each officer, and the five different uh, factors, the criteria is on a sliding scale, right, and up to the determination of each individual officers. So I, I know they increased one of the thresholds for a family of four was having an income of 32000 and then they increased that to 60000 as a uh, determining factor of, okay, this is a point against this applicant, right? Um, also, you take in age. Those between 18 and I think around 60, 61, where uh, the more favorable uh, decisions will go to those who are, are younger versus older, but they don't say the difference. Uh, applicant who's 20, all right, how does that play into this this sliding scale versus person who's 32? Mm-hmm. You know, how much does that change? How much of a negative factor is the 32-year-old uh, versus the 20-year-old? Those guidelines haven't been clearly defined. Yeah. And that's actually something that we're trying to kind of anticipate as best we can. But, you know, similar to the the question about the credit report as well, it's going to be a process to see how USCIS responds as we continue to file more and more of these these petitions with the I-944 form. Um, And I I love what you brought up, Ian, about um, the income level, right? So and what you're making reference to, obviously, is that if you make over 250% of the federal poverty guideline for your family size, whether it's four or two, whatever it is, then that's what USCIS says is a heavily weighted factor in your favor, a positive factor, right? Mm. But what does it mean if somebody makes between 125%, which was the previous level and and still technically is the the statutory level that you need to make over, um, and the 250%, this new 250%, Mm. you know, is that a a bad factor? Is that a good factor? Is it a semi-good factor? You know, we don't know. And that's, that's one of the things that's I think why early on in the process there was a lot of pushback to USCIS on this is there's a lot of gray areas that were that are going to leave immigrants kind of in the lurch in a way while this rule this new rule gets worked out over time. 
Yeah. So as we've, you know, the rule just took effect on February 24th. So we've submitted applications under the new rule. But of course, with current processing times, none of those cases have been adjudicated yet. So we are closely monitoring what these trends will be. And our guidance, you know, will shift with those trends. You know, if we notice that they're putting more emphasis on certain pieces of evidence, we will encourage applicants to make sure that they can include things like that. Um, And it is also important to note that, you know, as you guys have mentioned, this is a totality of the circumstances analysis, meaning they look at all of these different factors and then they make a determination within the adjudicator's discretion whether or not they believe that this uh, individual will likely at any time in the future become a public charge, um, which is quite a large analysis to make. Uh, But, you know, as Richard has already pointed to one of the heavily um, weighted positive factors, I think it is important for listeners to kind of understand at least what we know, what are heavily positive and what are heavily negative, and then mm. everything else does kind of fall within this gray area. So in addition to your income being over 250% uh, over the poverty guideline, um, you can also show that you have the appropriate health insurance for mm. your period of admission. Um, and they want to make sure that that excludes subsidies in the forms of premium tax credits. Um, and then, so those are really the positive factors. Hmm. And then if you're looking at the negative factors, you know, lack of employment is a big one. Students, thankfully, are exempted from that. Uh, Not totally sure how they will handle a situation where they're looking at a student application uh, because income is such a heavy uh, factor when you're looking at someone who might become a public charge. But they have specifically stated that they will be exempted. And then, of course, the receipt of public benefits uh, for more than 12 months in any 36-month period. So that's really not going to impact anyone for at least a year because they're looking at public benefits receded as of February 24th. So Mm -hmm. at least you have some sort of leeway in there. Um, And then, you know, they look seriously at at your health Um, history. So if you have a serious medical condition in combination with the fact that you don't have health insurance, that will be a a very big negative. So, you know, something that you can look at if you're not currently insured in the United States prior to filing your uh, adjustment of status application is to get health insurance. You know, Mm -hmm. that can only help benefit your case in the long run. So it's things like that that we're going to be looking out for as USCIS continues to adjudicate these petitions in the future. Got it. What are some of the questions that you guys have been receiving from clients? And, and One of the big questions that, that comes up for clients is, especially when they, if they see the I-944, right, form, is what does all this mean, mm. <laughs> right? And one of the things that's, again, you know, we're feeling it out as we move forward with the cases that we're filing. And one of the big things that they ask about is educational experience, right? Mm. Um, And so how far back do we need to go? They ask about English language skills or any language Mm, skills, which is just kind of really weird to me. Like, I don't, you know, I don't understand that. The English language (laughs) skills really took me back when I read it because as an English native speaker, I don't totally know how I would prove that I spoke English. You know, like, do I give you my high school transcript that shows that I took English courses? Like, that just seems like a very odd requirement and for people who you know didn't grow up here in the united states i do think that that would be problematic to be able to show that you speak english on paper without having some sort of interaction yeah especially exactly and especially from countries where english is an official language like india um, and then obviously many countries in europe and uk obviously right Mm -hmm. um and so what would you recommend they send like uh, a transcript from high school college saying that, oh, I took this English course 
Right. So right now, uh, our kind of advice to clients when they ask about it is to provide, yeah, their educational documents, which you have to provide anyways for, right. for another part of the question, um, from high school onwards. Um, and and then, you know, in a large part, um, not really worrying about the English language section. Mm. Um, it, this is just kind of anecdotal, but to give a little bit of... Um, this is something that I've kind of mentioned to clients as well, you know, as far as which things are concerning and which things aren't concerning within the I-944 um, and things you have to be worried about and like stress over about getting the documentation for, mm -hmm. the financial documentations are of the utmost importance, number one. right? Okay. That's number mm -hmm. one. Um, and and closely there behind, as, as Crystal talked about, health insurance information, right? Um, way down the list is going to be educational documents, in my opinion, right now. Obviously, this could change given what USCIS does with these new sure. cases, but um, educational documents and then, yeah, English language certifications and, and other professional certifications and licenses, which is another thing they ask for. Um, and, and, and what I mean by anecdotal is in the form itself, pages one through eight of this 18-page form are your personal information, your income, your debts, your assets. Um, Pages 8 through 11 are talking about public benefits. So these are just a list of these nine different public benefits uh, programs, basically, and you're checking whether you have ever applied for them and everything else. Um, and then pages 11 through 13, so talking about two pages, is everything else, the educational documents and, and all this other stuff, right? Um, the last five pages are just signature pages and stuff. But um, but yeah, so it's a small portion even of the physical form. Mm. So So I don't think that people need to be overly concerned about at least that's my opinion right now, the, the English language requirement, the educational documents and stuff like that. Obviously, we will be requesting those um, as will any other attorney that's that's doing these forms for you. But um, but I think the, of the utmost importance is, is the other stuff. Yeah. yeah I, I actually have a, a follow up <clears throat> question to that. Looking at the sufficiency of the evidence, do you think that USCIS will issue an RFE if they look through and they're like, oh, well, I'm just not totally convinced? Or do you think that they would wait for the AOS interview since now all adjustment of status applications have to physically appear, you know, to maybe bring further documents or to explain, you know, that would certainly bring into question whether or not someone speaks English at the interview. Uh, I'm curious to see how USCIS is going to handle these adjudications and what responses we'll see if for whatever reason they feel like there's some sort of deficiency in what we've provided. Yeah, I'm interested to see that as well. My my initial, um, you know, opinion on it is that USCIS, if the reviewing officer feels there's something insufficient in the application um, and they're unsure if this person will become a public charge or not, um, then they would issue an RFE. In my experience with AOS process up until now, anything that they're missing that's substantial in their minds, and by them I mean USCIS, they're going to ask before the interview. There's things at the interview they always, they'll ask for, you know, after the fact, if they learn something new at the interview, um, or if it's something like, you know, the medical report, uh, you know, which is a medical exam that has to be done. Uh, they'll ask for those at the interview sometimes if there's an issue with it or if it wasn't filed previously but um, those things are kind of more administrative right so if there's administrative things missing they'll hold off till the interview um, but if there's something that's substantial then they might i i would expect them to issue an rfe on it for sure <clears throat> just going back to your earlier question about you know what people have been asking uh questions in relation to this new rule i have gotten several questions as far as like which public benefits 
fall under this rule, this new rule, and which fall outside of the rule. So I've done a lot of research into it. The biggest one that hits applicants that I've seen thus far are state-issued cash assistance programs. And these are defined really by the state and the locality. So it's important that you look up your own state's rules on these. And I've done this research for you know several states like California and Florida. And if you do just do a search on their website, they have a whole cash assistance page. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the different programs. But something that I had discovered in the research that I thought was interesting is that the Social Security insurance is specifically excluded. And it's excluded because it's considered an earned benefit. Mm-hmm. Meaning you work here in the United States, your tax dollars go to this program so that in the event that you need it, you can kind of take from that fund. And you will see that there is a similarity in the way in which state programs are also run in that in that manner. So I do think that there's an argument to be made that if you are getting a benefit from a state program, that your sal- like tax dollars have been taken out of your salary and gone to the state specifically to pay for that program. And also that there is some sort of eligibility outside of, you know, just a basic means test then there is an argument to be made that those benefits fall outside. But if you are on the line, I do, you know, certainly encourage that you reach out to legal counsel to review it to make sure that that, you know, argument stands in your favor. Got it. So what are some of the programs that will weigh negatively? I'm I'm assuming uh, Medicaid, Medicare, like food stamps, SNAP benefits, that sort of... Um, If you're just getting cash from either the federal, state, or local level to maintain your, you know, living in Mm -hmm. the United States um, without having some sort of backup argument saying, I paid into this program. This is an earned benefit. I earned this. I'm not just getting this from the state, but this is actually my money coming back to me. Uh, That's really the difference that you want to look for those types of benefits. So I do want to mention how this new rule applies in the non-immigrant context because there's, you know, a lot of the media coverage and reports has been really heavily focused on the adjustment of status and this new form and that whole new process. But it is really important to note that this does, in fact, impact those who are in a non-immigrant status. So uh, for all applications moving forward, They've added what is called a a public benefit condition. It's a condition on approval for an extension of stay or a change of status application in the United States, which is buried in there uh, in the regulations. And it's particularly interesting to me because it does not appear, based on my reading of the regulation, that there's any sort of totality of uh, totality of the circumstances analysis. Instead, it's have you taken 12 months of benefits within the last 36 months? If so, you are no longer eligible to extend your uh, status in the United States or to change your status. And if you think about it practically, the way it would kind of work out is that you file this application, you in fact have taken these benefits, you're no longer eligible to, to remain in the United States, you then have to exit the U.S. And now here you are, you're now going to be subject to this new inadmissibility rule, which is what we've been talking about. Then you go through the whole the five factor test to be able to be let into the United States. So I am curious to one, you know, the reasoning behind something like that, that they've just added this new condition um, on this application that falls really outside of inadmissibility because you're not asking for an admission when you're extending your status in the United States. And then also, will the totality of the uh, circumstances analysis actually be better for the applicant? Because then they can look at other things like their income and their health and their age that can help mitigate the fact that they've taken public benefits. So I thought that was particularly interesting about this rule. Um And I'm interested to see how that actually plays out with non-immigrant petitions moving forward. I think something that's important to kind of 
understand there is, especially with this new I-944, there's going to be a lot of private information that's passing between mm -hmm. the attorney and the and the foreign national. And so, um, you know, if I think that the one thing that companies might want to be aware of and, and kind of anticipate is where do they want to draw the line as far as how much they're involved in that process, if their employees want them to be or not, or, or you know, where, where that line's drawn. I think that's still kind of a gray area that needs to be sussed out for each individual company. Um, but but that's something that I think that they need to be aware of as well, the companies that that this is there might be private, you know, financial documentation and other things like that necessary for them to know the company meaning. Thank you to lead researcher Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.